if you would stand to your feet and recite with me aloud, uh, as you confess this, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, my prayer this morning is that your son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted. Massively exalted. Super exalted. For your glory. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would stir a love in our hearts for you so profound that in comparison, as Jesus himself put it, our love for our closest ones on earth would be in comparison hate. That we would love you that much. So Jesus, I'm praying that you would be exalted, that we might be drawn to you. I pray that we would not tap out not drift out, but dial in. I'm reminded of what a privilege it is to gather. Reading an article this morning about yet another crackdown on believers in China and the risks they take that they might gather in some warehouse, in some basement, in some wooded lot in some hidden place so that they can raise their voices to you, so that they can pray to you, so that they can hear your word, even at the risk of death. But Lord, this is, help us not to cheapen this time by just being like whatever. But may Jesus Christ be exalted. And we ask this in his name, amen. All right. Grab a seat. When you hear somebody mention the return of Christ, I'm guessing that for most of us, the last thing we think about is Christmas. It's certainly probably not at the top of the list when you hear somebody mention the return of Christ. What do you think of? Clouds. Man, we're going to have fun. I like this. Thank you for see. And by the way, somebody asked me, what's it like preaching right now? I said, it's a privilege always to preach, but it's so sterile because we're all spread out and, you know, and every, people are more quiet. So thank you. You can follow Arpa's lead. And you, can, you can talk with me a little bit this morning. So listen, you think of all kinds of things, but probably not Christmas. Maybe you think of cheesy 
uh, low-budget Christian end-time movies. Maybe you think of complex eschatological charts in fancy terms like amillennial and postmillennial and premillennial or, or, or some view of the rapture. But I'm guessing when you hear about the second coming, you're not thinking of Christmas. In point of fact, however, Christmas, which simply marks the first advent or the first coming of Christ, it points to, rather, um, yes, Christmas points, the first advent of Christ points to the second advent of Christ, a return, I think, on a whole bunch of different levels. First of all, just on the prophetic level, let me put it plainly, if God was good on his promise to send Jesus the first time, you think he's going to be good on his promise to send Jesus a second time. It's a matter of his faithfulness, his fidelity to his covenant and his word. And then I think there's an emotional connection. Just as those early Old Testament believers long for the king to break into creation, we likewise look at all the brokenness around us and in us, and we long for the king to break into creation. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. The song has the tone of mourning and longing, and we do mourn and long and groan for a good king who will come and make all wrong things right. And that's what this little Christmas series has been about. Inspired somewhat by the song, There is a King, we long for a good king who will come and make all things right. There is a king above all kings. And if this is the first time you've been in for this Christmas series, you're not, it's okay. In fact, the Bible is the story about this king. Let me just summarize where we've been so far. In the Old Testament, the king says, I'm coming for you. And Genesis, all the way through Malachi, there are tons and tons of promises of the king saying, I will come. And we looked at that week one. We looked at just seven of 80 or so promises of his first coming. If God was good on those promises, he's going to be good on the promises yet unfulfilled. Then in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the king says, I've arrived. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So we looked last week at the arrival of the king. In the rest of the Bible, the book of Acts through Revelation, and really the other books as well, the king says, I'm coming back. I'm returning. And so we're going to close out this series this morning by looking at the return of Christ. Now maybe you're thinking, well, why are you messing with the return of Christ? Because I think Christmas points to it. The first advent points to the second advent. And by the way, Christmas is no, or rather the return of Christ, I should say, is no secondary kind of, you can take it or leave it, Christian doctrine. It is of primary importance. It is a prevailing theme of the, Old Test of the New Testament. In fact, in the Old Testament, something like, um, I think, 19 of the 37 books, if I'm not mistaken, 17 of the 30, 39 books point to the second coming of Christ. They actually mention the second coming of Christ. And some 23 of the 27 books of the New Testament themselves point to explicitly mention the return of Christ. Now, this blew me away when I studied this out. 
Did you know that the New Testament speaks of the second coming of Christ, the second advent of Christ, the return of Christ, eight times more than it does the first coming of Christ? Blew me away. Over 300 references to the second coming of Christ. Now, yes, the New Testament amplifies and explains the first coming far more than it does the second coming. That's what Paul's epistles do. But in sheer point of reference, it refers to the second coming far more than the, than the, than the first coming. No wonder, then, the earliest Christians confessed that Jesus Christ is going to return, as we just recited the Apostles' Creed, to judge the living and the dead. And Jesus Christ himself is on record as saying some 21 times he is coming back. Remember John 14 where it says, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come back again for you, that where I am you may be also. This is no secondary theme. Now, last week we looked at the first coming. I want you to know, just by way of introduction, there are some marked differences between the way he came the first time and the way he's going to return. For instance, he came via a womb. What was he? Six pounds, four ounces? Six pounds, nine ounces? Well, he, he came via a womb, right? But he's returning on a war horse. He's returning on a white horse in the full infinite gravitas or weight of the glory of the everlasting God. He came wrapped soon thereafter in swaddling clothes. But as Ty just read, he's returning in a robe drenched in blood. It's not his own blood, by the way, in this case. And he has a name written on him, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He came in humility. A feeding trough they placed him in, right? Oh, but when he comes back, what he said in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, he's coming back in irrefutable glory on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory, it says. He came as the Lamb of God. He's returning as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Revelation 5 and 5. He came incognito for the most part. But baby, when he returns, whether in salvation or condemnation, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He came and he was for the most part rejected. But when he comes back, every eye will see him and they will mourn for him. Revelation 1-7, mourn for what was done to him. He came, let's be clear on this. I'll summarize this, this. He came not to condemn the world, but what? That the world might be saved through him. But when he returns, he's coming to both judge people outside of Christ, outside of himself, and to finally and fully deliver all those who trusted and banked their soul on him. Now, I guess I ought to get this out of the way. This is, the, this is not the thrust or the point of this message, but if I want to be a faithful preacher, and I am going to talk about the return of Christ, the second advent, 
then I have to say that that particular day, what's called the day of the Lord, the day of Jesus Christ, all kinds of descriptions and titles for the return of Christ, that, to put it as mildly as I can, will not be a good day for those who are outside of Christ, ushering in an incomprehensible eternity. In fact, in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 16, the small and the great, doesn't matter what your earthly title was, what your earthly position was, whatever, the small and the great outside of Christ will cry out to the rocks and to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus talked about a time coming when the sheep are going to be sorted out from the goats. But what are you anyway? Are you a sheep or are you a goat? He gives great clarity on what that's going to look like at the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20 when the books will be opened. Earthly trials, there's so much debate about what the actual facts of the case are. There's no debate here on how you lived and what you thought and what you did because the omniscient God has a perfect record and there's going to be no bugs that are going to mess up his software. It'll be the fairest trial ever held and the most righteous judgment ever rendered. And then Jesus said, you'll be cast into outer darkness. And he gave some other descriptions there. This is tough stuff, right? This is rough stuff. But it's true stuff and it's real stuff. And I have to tell you that the second coming, the second advent, the return of Christ is not good news for those who never found the first coming to be good news beyond maybe some vague, nebulous, seasonal, sentimental vibe associated with maybe the one Christian image that is still somewhat okay in secular culture, namely baby Jesus in a manger. But I got to tell you, this king above all kings, he's more than a baby cooing in a cradle. This high king of heaven, this king above all kings, is more than a savior groaning on a cross. This high king of heaven, this king above all kings, is a returning, conquering king wearing a crown. And I don't know who I'm talking to, maybe present here or virtually, but I would say run to Christ. Run to Christ. Believe his Believe what he says about you. You know it. You're just honest with yourself. For one nanosecond, I am a broken, rebellious sinner. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. A Christian, in a sense, is one who has judged themselves as guilty as charge, guilty as sin before the bar of God, and then appealed to the one who took our hit on the cross and rose again from the dead. I, I, I hope you do that if you've not done that yet. But for those of us who, who believe that Jesus took our sin to the cross and that he bore the wrath of God, the righteous wrath of God that we deserve, that he truly died and was truly buried and he truly rose again, who have turned to him in repentant faith. Or in the words of the song that I mentioned, who believe that he was buried in shame and risen in power. 
that he is alive and the stone has been rolled away. For people who have turned to this good king above all kings, I want to encourage you this morning with this truth. The return of Christ, the second advent of Christ, is not fearful news for you. It is some of the most freeing news you can ever embrace. That we, in the words of Paul to Titus, are looking, Titus chapter 2, verse 13, we're looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when he says hope, it's not like we use hope. I hope we have a white Christmas. I think we might. That'll be cool. Boy, I, I hope the lions don't... <laughs> Hire Jim Harbaugh, and they go back to Jim Caldwell. Or I hope that Michigan fires. Okay, you get the point. Just wish, I don't know. When the Bible talks about hope in this way, it is a concrete, tangible, certain expectation rooted in unchanging reality, the absolute truth of God. He's saying it the way that Kiana quoted Hebrews 9 and 28, that he appeared one time, to offer himself as a sacrifice for many. But he's coming back a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save all those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is some really good news, isn't it? So I want to just, I want to knock off here a few blessings, a few encouragements for believers of what the return of Christ means for us, all right? So here they are. Number one. I already said it, but I want to hammer this. It will happen. It will happen. Again, if God was good on his promise to send Jesus the first time, he is going to be good on his promise to send him a second time. Jesus himself said 21 times, I'm coming back. So if you say you believe in Jesus, then you need to believe in what Jesus said. He's liar, lunatic, or he is Lord of Lord and King of He's not saying, well, this might happen. It could possibly, perhaps, it could, well, it should. No, no, he's dogmatic. It will happen. I am coming soon, he said. It will happen. Now, I know there are scoffers, right, saying, well, where's the promise of his coming? It will, it's, I think Larson read that passage from 2 Peter 3. Where's the promise of his coming? For all things remain the same since the creation of the world. And then he brings up this illustration. People said, when, when God said, hey, listen, because of the sin of man, I'm going to flood the world. People said, it ain't happening. And then boom, I don't know where the deluge came. And then he says, for a day is to the Lord as a thousand years. And a thousand years is but a day. God doesn't have a calendar. God doesn't have a timeline. God doesn't have an appointment time. God is above time all the time. He's the Lord of time, creator of time, outside of time. And the day is like a, a thousand years of the Lord and a thousand years like a day. But it will happen. And when it happens, I want to add to this, just one A, B, and C. When it happens, it's going to be personal. It's the personal return of Jesus. He's not sending an angel in his presence. It's going to be visible. It can be no doubt about it. Every eye will see him, as I mentioned from Revelation 1, verse 7, by way of introduction. It's going to be personal. It's going to be visible. And, baby, it is going to be physical. 
It's not going to be like the cults say. You know, the Jehovah's Witness said he was going to come back in 1840-something and 1917 or something like that, and, of course, it didn't happen. So what did they say? Very conveniently, well, he came back spiritually. No, fam, he's coming back physically. He's coming back, the Scripture says, in the same body that was nailed to a cross, laid in a tomb, risen, glorified, and ascended. In Acts chapter 1, verse 11, when he goes back to heaven and the disciples' jaws quite naturally drop to the ground, angel says, get after it. What are you doing? This same Jesus who went, who will come back in like manner. It will happen, number one. Number two, not only will it happen, it could happen at any minute. The word is imminent. It could happen just like that. Now, we don't know the date. The Bible warns about saying dates. It brings great reproach upon Christians when, when people do that. It's just foolish. And yes, I realize the Bible says certain things will happen before Jesus returns. But here's the thing. The world's so big, we don't know everything that's happened, right? Right? So it could have already happened, or it could be happening. So in effect, Jesus' return is imminent. It could happen just like that. Do you know how fast it's going to happen? Oh, you took it away. I was going to, for, for effect, I was going to put my glasses on, take them off, and blink. It says, I don't know if it's a blink or a twinkle, if that's the same thing. I don't know. But 1 Corinthians 15 says, in the twinkle of an eye. It's going to happen. And three times in the very last chapter of the Bible, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon. So here's the deal. It's going to happen, number one. Number two, it could happen any moment. Now, number three, when it happens, Jesus Christ is going to wreck shop on all evil that has not been dealt with at the cross. I've mentioned several verses. You know, people love to say, as one pastor said, they love to share Jeremiah 29, and what is that? For behold, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. A plan for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. We'd love to quote that, but how about what Ty read, he will tread the winepress of the fear of the wrath of God Almighty. Again, I said, this is not good news for those outside of Christ. But now I'm taking this at a different angle. It is good news for those inside Christ that he will finally and fully and unilaterally wreck shop on all evil that was not dealt with at the cross. He will fully and finally eradicate evil once and for all. You ever heard of um, a Jewish organization called Mossad? M-O-S-S-A-D. They are basically the Israeli equivalent to the CIA. When Israel became a state, they started Mossad. Mossad has a branch whose primary mission is to hunt down and bring to justice those hardcore Nazi war criminals, people like Dr. Joseph Mengele. And they did some horrific things. I won't even describe some of the things they did, let alone herding Jewish people like cattle into ovens. They hunt them down. 
And what they do is they, they try and spirit them out of the country so they can have a trial. Sometimes, like down in Brazil, they kind of have to drug the person to somewhat get them on the plane. And other times, um, they would actually, if they couldn't get them out of country and they designate that's the person, they would assassinate them. Now, you might say that's a little bit too much. But there might be something in you that says, well, they did get justice, huh? Or, or, or how about this? I hear many fathers, I just talked to another father last week, who said the first time he held his newborn, his, his firstborn, he, he, and mothers will say the same thing, they, they experience a love and a desire to protect that they've never, ever yet experienced. Parents, you know what I'm talking about, Right? And this one gentleman said, I love this son so much that if anybody does something wrong to him, and you guys know the kind of wrongs that can be done to kids, God have mercy on the perpetrator because I won't. Now, again, I think we can resonate with that a little bit, right? Right? Evil done to hurt people. But when we're talking about God, we're not talking about revenge like we know revenge because in every example I gave, that can be very much tainted with sin, right? No, no, we're not talking about revenge with God when he wrecks shop. We're talking about righteousness ruling. He will eradicate all unrighteousness that harms his people and tarnishes his glory. And I think it's put squarely in 2 Peter 3, among many other scriptures, that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in a knife, and it will roar. And it's, it's one of those words, omnipoetic or something like that, but a word that sounds like it, like it goes down. It's that kind of word in the Greek. Heavens and earth are going to burn up. And then according to the promise, there will be a new heavens and a new earth wherein reigns righteousness. See, he's going to come back, and he's going to wreck shock on all evil that was not dealt with at the cross. Number four, when that happens, we are going to experience radical shalom forever. Radical shalom. Remember those verses I quoted two weeks ago from Revelation? I think it's 19. After this, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And then I heard him on the throne say, Behold, I'm making all things new. And then he said, Write this down, for these words are faithful and true. Do you remember those words? You see, when Jesus Christ returns, there's going to be no more funeral homes, no more hospitals, no more police departments. No more militaries, no more political parties, none, no need of them. They're needed, and for the most part, pretty good, but they are a necessary thing in a cursed world. When Jesus comes back to finally and fully reverse the curse, all these things are going to be gone. But when we talk about radical shalom, we're not just talking about the absence of bad stuff. We're not just talking about the absence of conflict and the absence of suffering and the absence of hurt. No, no. We're talking about radical shalom. And shalom is such a big word, you really can't define it simply as the word 
peace. People say shalom peace. It, it's that. But man, there's a whole lot more flavors than that, Jambalaya. There is connotations of health and security and wholeness and holiness and satisfaction and all the rest. And yes, in God's grace, we get glimpses of shalom in this earth, don't we? I mean, just like at Christmas time. Man, some, we're going to eat some good meals, some of us, and we're going to say, oh, that's shalom, right? But then that shalom is going to be robbed because then you're going to say, man, I, I probably, some of you think there's too much of this and probably some not enough, but I just gained about seven pounds and no, no more shalom, right? Or you're going to receive a gift and you're going to say, I like it, but I wish I'd gotten this color or this size would have been a little bit better or maybe it's an electronic thing and you know how it works. The day after the warranty expires, kaput. The thing no longer works, right? Trying to find ultimate satisfaction in this world, I think the writer of Ecclesiastes put, puts it so visually when he says it's like, it's like chasing the wind. He, can you hold wind in your hands? It's an impossibility. And most older Christians will tell you, younger Christians, it's going to take you a lifetime of your heart being broken to finally even begin to get the idea that ultimate satisfaction is not found in anything on this earth. But when we dwell with him in his immediate presence, when we see him for who he is in the beatific vision, we are going to experience radical shalom. Number five. We will be, I'm going to race, I'm going to race. We're going to be with every believer from every age. This is going to be the ultimate family reunion. When Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, his first epistle, he was, one of the things he was doing, I think Lynn read this text, chapter 4 is there was a heresy going around saying that even if you had trusted Christ, if you died if you physically died before Christ's return, guess what? You lost out on your salvation. You're lost forever. So Paul says, oh, no, 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 no. You got it all wrong. The sound of a trumpet, just a twinkling of an eye and all the rest. The dead in Christ are going to rise. And then we which are alive will be caught up and will be together with the Lord. So therefore, he says, comfort one another with these words. So the day's coming. The day is coming when we're going to have the ultimate family reunion. And I just think of some, I think of some older Christians that I, that I ministered to, the first church I passed, I was one of the pastors at in South Bend, Indiana. I was an outreach pastor, and I also ministered to the seniors. And I can't wait. This one guy, he, he could sound like a choo-choo train. My family remembers him. I can't wait to be, the way he could make every kind of sound. He was just the most intriguing man, fought in World War II. I can still remember stories and stories and stories. I can't wait to fellowship with saints like that. And not just them, but go back through the ages. Every believer from every age is going to be together. But you might say, that don't sound too good to me right now. Because I got some believers that I'm not so harmonious with. Well, number six. I would put it this way. At the return of Jesus, love is going to flow like never before. Why? Because sin... The very thing that gets in the way of us experiencing the fullness of God's love for us, right? And sin, the very thing that gets in the way of us extending deeper love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And sin, 
the very thing that gets in the way of us experiencing the fullness of our love, of the love of brothers and sisters in Christ. It's going to be finally once and for all dealt with, right? It's going to be out of the way. And we're going to experience love like we have never experienced love before. Whether you're married or single or old or young, nothing on earth. It may point to that kind of love, but that love is going to be love we've never experienced before because sin's going to be out of the way. And I think that's very relevant for 2020, don't you? Think about how much division and animosity and suspicions and hair-trigger offensive mentalities have cropped up between Christians this year because of real and perceived things regarding COVID-19 and racial issues and on and on and on. I mean, the reality is people who a year ago were quite cool with each other, kind of cool to each other. I've experienced that. Maybe you have as well. But Revelation is packed with the images of the love that's going to flow like never before when, when Christ returns. For instance, there's going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're all going to be seated there. Every believer from every age. That's some kind of table. But that's what it says. And there's going to be this tree. You've heard of Fruit of the Month Club. Well, there's going to be the everlasting Fruit of the Month Club. And the leaves will be for the healing of the ethnos, the healing of the nations. It's beautiful. And in Revelation, they have that great doxology. They cry out in unison to him who loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood. We will experience love like never before. Now, I'm going to close with two more, and then I'm just going to, I want to be done. You notice the last four, he will wreck shop on evil that was not dealt with at the cross, will experience radical shalom forever, will be with every believer from every age, love will flow like never before. Those were all communal. They were communal. Why is that important? Because Christianity is not a privatized religion. It's not. Christianity is first and foremost communal. It's us being called into fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit with each other. And if your version of Christianity is you and God, you may have a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. And I think that's important to note that we come together as much as you can, physically or virtually in this time, lest there be in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart leading us to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another as long as it's called today that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we need to come together in some way to live out these communal, communal realities and break open the spelling salt of what's true about the resurrection for us. Now, last two right here. He is going to transform our bodies. The first church I served at, uh, Community Baptist in South Bend, Indiana, I remember one of the senior saints, elderly gentleman. He, had, he also had been in World War II, and he had a foot that was almost flat because a tank ran over it at the beach landing. Fascinating gentleman, but he was dying. His wife called me over. He's emaciated. He's gaunt. He's got that barely looks like he has life in his eyes. Um, the death pall. Have you ever been around a person that's dying? You know what I'm talking about. I mean, he, he was in rough shape, just a shell of what he had been even a few years earlier. And I read to her Philippians 3, 20, and 21, which says, But our citizenship is in heaven, 
And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject even all things to himself. Now, a little more to that story is I read it in the King James, which says, who will transform our vile body. She didn't like that. <laughs> she, she, she loves the Lord, and I'm sure she's with the Lord now for years. But she says, Pastor Mike, I don't, I, don't, I don't really like that. Our bodies aren't vile. And it's probably not the best translation, and I get it. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. But since the curse has afflicted this world and our bodies, there is a sense where we're not only lowly bodies but vile bodies. There is a real sense of, of that, isn't it? I mean, it, not just bodies on their deathbed like he was, but all of us because we're actually born on our deathbed, in a sense. Dying, you shall die. The fall is still pervasive. We're still under the curse. And that curse doesn't just hit, it hits all of our bodies. It even hits our brains. So it's not just physical weakness, it's mental weakness, it's emotional weakness, it's brokenness. So don't think just cancer, think depression. Think Alzheimer's. Think all of that. That's, that's because of the fall. But the day is coming. The day is coming in which we will be transformed into the likeness of his glorious body. This ain't just, listen, this ain't just when you die, your body goes to the ground and your soul goes to be. And that's beautiful to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. But this is even more. This is the day coming at the end of the age when our bodies, our souls, our spirits will be reunited, re-restored to behold his glory and to live as he designed us to forever in glorious communion. He's going to transform our bodies, everything that we need to. And then finally, he will finish the good work he has begun. He will do it. Have you ever read a book in which it is so disturbing, it's so scary, it's so depressing that you say, well, I'm just going to kind of flip forward and see how it ends. I, I, I gotta, this is just too much for me. There's too much tension. I want to see how this ends. Anybody ever done that or with a movie or something? You know, sometimes that's good to do with our lives. There are some great chapters in our lives, right? Most people have some great chapters in their lives. Oh, childhood all the way up. But most people have some really gritty chapters too, right? It's like, in fact, some really heartbreaking, difficult chapters. And when you're in a chapter like that, sometimes maybe you ought to flip forward and read the last chapter and see how it all turns out. And in a sense, that, that's what this message has been about. Don't forget the last chapter. And by the last chapter is an unending chapter, unlike all the other chapters. But this point gives one final jolt, jolt to that momentum. Philippians 1.6 6 says this. You can be confident of this very good thing. That he who has begun a good work in you will perform it, there's the word day, through the day through the return of Jesus Christ. God will finish his good work in you, believer. Relish in that. Ravish in that. 
and flip forward early and often all the places in the Bible we get to taste that future and final and everlasting chapter. And speaking of this book, and I close here, do you know how many verses are in the Bible, in the English Bible? There are 31,102 verses. Now, I want to read to you the very last two verses of this massive and mighty and marvelous book. It says this, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. John says, Come, Lord Jesus. And then he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. In light of all that we have looked at, how can we not join that prayer going up and say, come quickly, Jesus. Amen. Come, come quickly. And in the meanwhile, we close with that benediction. The grace of the Lord be with you all. I pray that God, believer, has encouraged you with the reality. Christmas points to the return of Christ which is incredible news for those who embraced all the beauty of this Christmas. Father, I pray that you would use this message in our hearts. Lord, as I talked to in the, in the introduction, uh, the non-Christians, Lord, would they, would they turn to Christ while they have breath in their lungs? Because you can look the part but yet be outside, and there's going to be sheep and goats separated. So I pray, Lord, that you would turn some goats into sheep. And I thank you that your sheep ultimately hear your voice. They know you and they follow you. I pray that that following would start today. And if someone's fallen off the track, that following would start again. And I pray for believers here who are in some hard chapters. <laughs> and life's going to throw us a lot of hard chapters. That in those times, instead of wilding out, we would go to the Word and go to the last final chapter and find strength to persevere, to find joy in suffering, hope in despair, health in sickness, and all the rest that we might experience. It won't be perfect, but more and more of a radical shalom that will be ours forever. Fix our gaze upon you, Jesus, right now. I pray before that you would be exalted. I pray, as I pray before I preach, this is not the end of worship. This is the continuation. This is a chance to respond, Lord. That we would, we would seize this opportunity to fix our attention on you, knowing that people do this all over the world at great cost, at great risk. To look to you and to worship you however you lead us to, in these moments I ask in the mighty name of the King that is above all kings, Jesus Christ, amen.